Turn with me to John chapter 12. Gospel of John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 37 through 41 and considering the glory of Christ. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, the glory of Christ. Give attention to God's holy word. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have said of your church that this is your house of glory. And you have promised to glorify the house of your glory. And so we ask now, O Lord, this evening that you would give us a glimpse of your glory in the preaching of the word, and we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the ancients taught fairly universally that wisdom is understanding cause and effect. Virgil, the great uh, Roman poet, put it this way, Felix, qui potuit rerum cognoscere causas. Now I'll translate it for you because we don't speak tongues here. O happy man who can learn the causes of things. This was a universal principle of knowledge and wisdom and of understanding among the ancients. But the ancients could only learn so much. The ancients not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, could only penetrate so far into understanding the causes of things. They could not learn the things that God had kept hidden. Paul speaks of this wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says in that passage that we speak the wisdom of the mature. Not the wisdom of this world, nor the wisdom of the rulers of this world, but the hidden wisdom, the the wisdom that is hidden in a mystery that was ordained for our glory. That hidden wisdom is God's eternal decree in Christ, whereby he has foreordained the restoration of all things. That is, this this hidden wisdom that Paul is speaking about, this ultimate cause for all the things that come to pass, this secret mystery that the ancients could never understand. It is God's purpose to save men by the Lord Jesus Christ. However, God's decree, His eternal purpose 
happens, it is executed according to the nature of secondary causes. You know, at this point, I'll just put a plug for the Westminster Confession Study. We've been studying this very topic on Wednesday nights at my house, God's eternal decree and its relationship to secondary causes. God ordains that all things happen according to their proper cause and effect. You know, many times we as Presbyterians can misunderstand how God's decree works. We all would confess, God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and then we stop at the level of the primary cause. But you see, He has ordained all things to come to pass according to the nature of secondary causes. God has ordained that His people will be saved. He has also ordained that they will be saved by means of preaching. Likewise, in God's ultimate purpose to save men through the Lord Jesus Christ, He has ordained that to happen according to a proper cause and effect. The cross, the way in which God has ordained to save men, the cross was the worst crime in history. But not only was it the worst crime in all of history, it was also the great act of apostasy on the part of the Jews. You see, the cross was not only a murder, it was also religious adultery, the ultimate expression of the Jews' rebellion against God. Therefore, for the cross to happen... The Jews had to reject Christ. For God's decree to be fulfilled, the Jews had to reject their Messiah. And that's what we're going to learn in this passage that John has for us this evening. In John chapter 12, specifically, what we're going to learn is that the glory of Christ clearly displayed in his earthly ministry, was rejected by the Jews through their unbelief in fulfillment of God's decree to save men by the cross. The glory of Christ, clearly displayed in his earthly ministry, was rejected by the Jews through their unbelief in fulfillment of God's decree to save men by the cross. This passage, we're going to notice three things. First, a glorious display in verse 37. Second, an unbelieving rejection in verse 38. And then finally, a sovereign fulfillment in verses 39 through 41. Verse 37 is a glorious display. Verse 38 is an unbelieving rejection. And verses 39 through 41 is a sovereign fulfillment. And so we begin by looking at this glorious display. Notice, uh, keep in mind the context of John chapter 12. As I've been reiterating throughout this uh, series in John chapter 12, 
We are on the cusp of the crucifixion, and what John is doing in this chapter is setting up the crucifixion of Christ. The beginning of John chapter 12 says it's six days before the Passover. The beginning of chapter 13, after the very next episode, John says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And so we are right in the antechamber of the crucifixion. And as John is getting us ready for the crucifixion, he summarizes the earthly ministry of Christ in verse 37. He says, but although he had done so many signs before them. This is a a summary statement of everything Christ had done in his earthly ministry. Your translation, if you're reading the King James, might say miracles. The Greek word here is semeon. And it's better translated in the New King James. Perhaps the ESV has a good translation here as well. Uh, The word is better translated as signs. These signs that Christ performed are miracles or, or mighty deeds that serve to support doctrine. Miracles in the Scriptures are given for the purpose of supporting the doctrine that's being taught. There are, uh, classically, two great periods of miraculous activity. One is in the ministry of Moses. The other is in the ministry of Christ. Now, there are miracles with Elijah and Elisha, but those are kind of an um, appendix to the ministry of Moses. They're still operating under the Mosaic Covenant. In the days of Moses and in the days of Christ and the apostles, this is where you see the most miracles happening because it's in the days of Moses and in the days of Christ that God is bringing new doctrine, that he's revealing his mystery to men. Exodus chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, you can turn there if you'd like. Exodus chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, God is about to send Moses to Pharaoh and to the Israelites to bring them out. And Moses raises a concern. He says, what if they don't believe me? What if they say, God has not visited you? And the Lord says, okay, take your staff, throw it on the ground, turned into a snake. Now grab it by the tail, turns back into a staff. He says also, stick your hand in your coat and pull it out. It turns leprous. The Lord tells Moses, they will believe these two signs that I have sent you. Same kind of signs that Christ is performing. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 22, it says that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt with many signs and wonders. So John characterizes the ministry of Christ by these signs and wonders. Here's just a brief listing of some of the miracles of Christ. I want you to pay attention to these because I think sometimes it's, it's easy for us to forget this aspect of the ministry of Christ. Especially as Reformed Christians, we're, we're sometimes more interested in Paul's letters and some of the deeper doctrines that Paul deals with. But all of the Gospel accounts r- record all of these fulfillments of prophecy. And the purpose of these fulfillments, the purpose of these signs is to clearly display that Jesus is the Christ. And so here's a brief listing of some of them. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and conceive, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was fulfilled in the virgin birth of Christ. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Matthew records that Christ went to Egypt so that God 
could fulfill what Hosea said, I have called my son out of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the ministry of John the Baptist is predicted as the ministry of the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at the baptism of Christ, God the Father speaks audibly from heaven. The first time, I could be corrected on this, but probably the first time God's voice has been heard audibly since Mount Sinai that God speaks audibly to the ears of men at the baptism of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, when Christ heals the multitudes, Matthew records, he himself bore our infirmities. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, the humility of the servant. This is one of the signs that's fulfilled in the gospel of Matthew. You remember the scene. He just performed great miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick, And then he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't spread the word. Then Matthew records this fulfills the humility of the servant of the Lord. He will not cause his voice to be heard in the streets. He will not have a Twitter account with a live stream of all of his miracles. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, we just saw this in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Behold, your king comes to you riding on a colt, a donkey's, uh, riding on the colt of a donkey. And then finally, very interesting, turn to John chapter 21. John 21, verse 25. The the gospel writer, the apostle John, finishes his gospel this way. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Which, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So, so this brief summary of Christ's miracles is only 1%, maybe even a, a tenth of 1% of everything that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. You can imagine it this way, probably what it was like being around Christ is is almost everywhere he went, he was healing, teaching, performing some kind of miracle constantly. That's what John is describing. He did so many things. If I gave you an exhaustive, detailed list, there would not be enough books in all the world to record all of it. And so as John writes in verse 37, although he had done so many signs. One of the ways that you can think about these signs, they are, as it were, prophetic credentials. You've seen the crime shows, right? Where the crime happens and the detectives come and the detectives are always dressed in plain clothes. They wear a sport coat or they wear street clothes. And, and they walk up, and the irony is, a lot of times, detectives who work in urban settings look just like gangsters. There's, there's nothing different about them, except they have their credentials. They pull out the badge, and they say, oh, I'm Detective so-and-so with the NYPD. Well, likewise, with the signs of Christ, they are his credentials. Outwardly, he didn't look like anybody special. He looked like an ordinary Jew in the first century. But these signs were his credentials that he was sent 
by the Father. Turn to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. We read this before in the confession of sin, but it's important to pay a little bit more attention to what Moses actually says about these signs. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear, according to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, in other words, if the sign that he prophesies does not happen, if there are no signs, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Christ's ministry as the prophet, like unto Moses, was abundantly proven by the signs he performed. And amazingly, you know, think about this. This is a little bit off script, but I want you to glory in this with me for a little bit. You look at the way that the prophets of the Old Testament performed their signs and miracles. Think about cleansing lepers. Elisha was approached by a leper, Naaman the leper. Naaman was a Syrian general. He comes to, uh, he sends a servant to Elisha, says, I hear that you're a prophet. I want you to cure me of my leprosy. And then Elisha tells Naaman, "Uh, go in the river, wash seven times, and you'll be clean. When a leper came to Christ, all Christ said was, be clean. And he was clean right there on the spot. You see, Elisha performed a sign, but it took a little bit of time for it to manifest itself. Christ performs the sign right on the spot by the word of his power. And so Christ's role as the prophet was abundantly proven by the signs. Therefore, the Jews should have believed in him. These outward signs should have been proof that Jesus is the one we are looking for. You know, Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, if the sign does not come to pass... You do not need to fear that prophet. You do not need to fear what he says. You will not be judged for what that prophet teaches. But on the other side, if the signs do come to pass, that prophet should be feared. That prophet should be honored because he is one of my prophets. Well, likewise with the Lord Jesus Christ. So John gives us this glorious display. He he sets up the context here for what's going to happen next. After this glorious display, we see an unbelieving rejection. Notice what John says in 37. They did not believe him. 
that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice the verse that, I, that he quotes from Isaiah. It is the unbelief of the Jews that conceals the glory of Christ from them. Look again at the verse from Isaiah. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a very common phrase that refers to God's power, His strength, His might. In the exodus from Egypt, God is often described as displaying His mighty arm in bringing Israel out of Egypt. The arm of the Lord were the mighty signs and wonders that He performed in the land of Egypt. Well, John is saying here that none of these people have believed our report. None of these Jews are believing in Christ. None of them can see the glory of Christ. The arm of the Lord has not been revealed to them. Their unbelief is what conceals the glory of Christ from them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this, this idea of the mystery and the, the wisdom that was ordained for our glory. He writes, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Christ performed all these mighty miracles, and because of the unbelief of the Jews, they cannot see His glory. They did not know that He was the Lord of glory. It was concealed from them. And so as we return to John chapter 12, we can see that the ignorance, not knowing that Jesus is the Lord of glory, was the secondary cause for the crucifixion. Now, what do I mean by a secondary cause? In the Westminster Confession of Faith, summarizing the teaching of the Scriptures, the primary cause of all things that happen is the decree of God. God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. That's the primary cause. However, everything comes to pass according to secondary causes. God ordained that Christ should be crucified. He also ordained that that crucifixion would come about by the ignorance of the Jews not knowing who he was. And so this ignorance of the Jews is the secondary cause leading to salvation. Consider also the broader context of the verse that John quotes in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 53, verse 1. This is the verse that John quotes in verse 38, Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Well, Isaiah makes this complaint in his own day. John quotes it as applying to Christ in his day. And think with me, where does Isaiah 53 go from here? Well, Isaiah 53 is the clearest prediction of the crucifixion of Christ. Notice in verse 1, nobody has believed our report. And then you move down to verse 4 through 6. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I believe this is why John quotes that verse at this point in chapter 12 of his gospel. He's accounting for why the crucifixion happened. He's trying to help us understand the causes of the crucifixion. And the secondary cause was the rejection of the Jews. In order for men to be saved, Christ had to be crucified. In order for Christ to be crucified, he had to be rejected by the Jews. In order for the Jews to reject him, his glory had to be concealed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Westminster Confession chapter 5, paragraph 2, speaks about God's providence. Westminster Confession 5, 2 speaks about God's providence. They say this, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And so John tells us the unbelief of the Jews is one of the causes leading to the crucifixion. Not only so, but notice how he quotes Isaiah 53, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, etc., etc. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah's ministry. It's very interesting, isn't it, that John quotes this passage from Isaiah He uses it in the ministry of Christ to the same effect. And he ties in the truth that we find in Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Think about it this way. When, When Isaiah was ministering in his day and he was preaching the word of God, Isaiah's ministry was to the Jews of his day, yet his ministry continued, as it were, through his writings, and Isaiah's ministry doesn't culminate until the ministry of Christ. That's why John can quote this verse in the ministry of Christ, just as it applied to Isaiah. Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26, I won't read the entire passage, but, but Peter is preaching to the Jews, and he says... Uh, Yet, brethren, verse 17, I know that you crucified Christ in ignorance, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, 
so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Here's the point. The ministry of the prophets was the ministry of the gospel. The purpose of the prophetic office was to preach the gospel of Christ. That's what Peter says right here. That's what John's doing by quoting Isaiah 53 in the context that he quotes it in. Now, there's a very strong application for us at this point before we get into the last part of our sermon. It is for this reason. As you go through the gospel accounts, especially in Matthew, but also in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find them saying all over the place, this happened so that what was spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. This happened so that what was spoken by Hosea might be fulfilled. This happened so it would be fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. You know what's happening there? In the ministry of Christ, all of the Old Testament prophets have their signs finally fulfilled. Think about Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth. He gives that prophecy maybe six, seven hundred years before Christ comes. And Isaiah makes that prophecy and says, a virgin shall conceive and be with a son. Well, there's the prophecy. There's the sign that Isaiah made. And at the point that he makes it, there remains a question mark until it's actually fulfilled. If the sign does not come to pass, that prophet didn't come from the Lord. So for about 700 years, Isaiah's prophecy has a giant question mark over it. And then Christ was born of a virgin, that it might be fulfilled what was said by Isaiah the prophet, etc., 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 throughout all the gospel accounts. This gives us strong confidence in the Old Testament scriptures. This actually ratifies the Old Testament scriptures to a greater degree than they had in the days of the Old Testament. They have now all been fulfilled. There are no question marks over the Old Testament. Everything has been fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is why Peter says in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The ministry of Christ and all the signs that he performed fulfill all the words of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And now Peter says, because this word has been confirmed, pay attention. Give heed to the prophecies of the Old Testament. I, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, I've, I've been encouraging you throughout most of my ministry to read the Scriptures, read a lot of Scripture. What you're going to find when you read the prophets, they can be sometimes difficult to read, but when you read the prophets, you will find much deeper reasoning and thought about how God rules His church. 
It's really in the prophets that you find them making connections between the sins of the people and what's happening in their lives. In the prophets, you find the wisdom of the covenant. It's not as evident in the historical books. The historical books are mostly narrative with not a lot of commentary. In the prophets, it's mostly commentary with a little bit of narrative. And it's that commentary from a prophet, from the Lord himself, that gives you wisdom, helps you understand the causes of things. So I encourage you along with Peter, pay more attention to the prophets. Pay more attention to the prophets because all of it has been fulfilled. Well, we've seen a glorious display. We've seen an unbelieving rejection. There's one final piece of John's message to us tonight, and that is a sovereign fulfillment. Not only was Christ's glory displayed, and not only did the Jews reject his glory in unbelief, but all of this was happening in fulfillment of God's decree. And that's where, I, that's where John goes in verses 39 through 41. Notice in verse 39 he says, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again. Notice the difference in language between verse 38. I'm sorry, verse uh, 37. Christ did all these signs, and they did not believe, stating the fact. Now in verse 39, he says, they could not believe. It was impossible for them to believe. Why? Because God had ordained that they not believe. Look at what he says. He quotes Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. This is a very hard passage from the book of Isaiah. This, a lot like Hebrews 6, is a very difficult truth that John is bringing to our attention. Don't misunderstand. He's saying God blinded their hearts. God is the one who hardened their hearts so that they would not believe, so that they would not repent. The unbelief of the Jews was foreordained and sovereignly executed by God. That's what John is telling us here. It was foreordained and sovereignly executed by God. I've already quoted this passage, but if you want to look at it in the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1, God's eternal decree, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. This is the primary cause for why the Jews rejected Christ. Psalm 33, 11 says that God's, um, I don't recall it off the top of my head, let me look it up so I don't misquote it for you. Psalm 33, 11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to every generation. It is God's counsel that controls all things that come to pass. And so John tells us that this happened because of God's sovereign decree, his eternal decree. But understand also, along with God's eternal decree, not only is it the, the thing that causes all things to come to pass... God's eternal decree is centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The center of everything God is doing 
is salvation through Christ by the cross. Revelation, 19, uh, Revelation 13, 8, Christ is described as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When the world was founded, the purpose was always that the Lamb should be slain. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, inasmuch as He has chosen us in Him that we should inherit uh, the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 11, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And the counsel of God's will, the cause of all things, is that sinners should be saved in Christ by the cross. And God works everything together to bring that to pass. Notice the other thing that John says in chapter 12 of his gospel. This is a sovereign fulfillment. Let me just make one comment here, because I know we're, we're bumping into a very difficult doctrine, sometimes a doctrine that it's hard for us to swallow. Just as it says in the book of Exodus, so likewise it says here, God hardens the hearts of those he intends to destroy. God hardens the hearts of those he does not intend to save. If we believe that God is absolutely sovereign and all things come to pass by his eternal decree, then we have to say that those who reject Christ reject Christ because God ordained them to reject Christ. Peter says this in chapter 2 of his letter. They stumble at that stumbling stone to which also they were appointed. He's referring to the eternal decree. Now, the, the problem we have with this, when we talk about the eternal decree, we have to remember who made the eternal decree. The most wise, most holy, God Almighty. The one who is always just in everything that he does. You see, if you and I made this eternal decree, it would be completely unjust and arbitrary and full of wickedness and sin. Because we are unjust and arbitrary and full of wickedness and sin. But because God Almighty is wise, holy, and just in everything that he does, his eternal decree is wise, holy, and just. Those whom God hardens and leaves in their sinful estate deserve to be left in their sinful estate. Nobody deserves to be softened and brought to the Lord Jesus Christ through the means of grace. But God sovereignly chose to save some and not all. There's two things this should cause us to do. One, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, thank the Lord for opening your heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we often forget. I find myself often forgetting this, partly because I'm a pastor and I'm always in the Scriptures dealing with gospel truth. But perhaps you as well, as a Christian who reads the Bible and attends worship services, you're always thinking about the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget what Paul the Apostle says about the gospel of Christ. It is 
the hidden mystery that God has concealed from ages and from generations and has manifested now for your glory. The only reason we know about the gospel of the Lord Jesus is because God chose in His grace to reveal it to you. It is a profound mystery that sinners can be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank Him for it. Praise Him for it. And never take it for granted. Because it is only God's mercy that makes this known to you. The second thing we need to realize is that our job is not to win converts, per se. Our job is to be faithful to the testimony. You see, it's God who opens the heart to receive it. Just like in Isaiah's day. Isaiah, you know, in in, uh, uh, Isaiah 6, where this passage comes from, Isaiah is brought into the Lord's throne room, and the Lord says, Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go. Send me. I'll preach for you. And then the Lord says, Great, go preach. And harden their hearts, close their eyes, and close their ears. Isaiah's job was not to win converts. His job was to be faithful to the word God gave him. The results are up to God, not you and me. Now, this is true not only in the ministry of the church, but it's also true in your various callings and vocations. Mother, father, your job is not to produce obedient, saintly children. Your job is to be faithful in the means God has given you, trusting that He will work through those means. I want to encourage you in this because we live in the day and we live in the culture of American accomplishment. One of the things that defines Americans is that we know how to get stuff done. We, we know how to build bridges. We know how to build cars. We know how to send hundreds and thousands of tanks and bombs to Europe and Japan at the same time and fight a two-front war. Now, that's nothing to shake a stick at. It was, an, it was an amazing accomplishment. But part of our culture and part of the way we think as Americans is we've got to get it done. We, we've got to figure out a way to accomplish the task. That can be a good mindset in certain places. But it can also be a burdensome mindset when things don't go the way you think they should. It can be a burdensome mindset when you begin to think that success is what God rewards. God does not reward success. He rewards faithfulness. Just as he rewarded Isaiah and just as he rewarded Christ, he will also reward you for being faithful to his word. Well, this this sovereign decree is, is why the Jews could not believe in Christ. It was impossible for them to believe. But notice the last thing that Isaiah tells us. And here really is the glory of Christ. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah chapter 6 is what John has just quoted, and, and you know the scene. I've referred to it briefly. King Uzziah has just died. And Isaiah says that, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne of his glory. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the posts of the doors shook when the Lord spoke. And as Isaiah beholds the glory of the Lord, he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Isaiah saw the glory, as John identifies it here, 
of the pre-incarnate Christ. Isaiah was beholding the glory of the second person of the Trinity. And this second person of the Trinity was glorious in his throne, commissioning Isaiah to be a prophet. And he commissioned Isaiah in his ministry to harden the hearts of the Jews. The one who decreed this hardening is the same one who will be rejected by this hardening. Let me put it another way. Christ ordained that the Jews would not believe, would be blind to His glory, and would crucify Him. The same Christ who decreed the rejection is the same Christ who will suffer for that rejection. That's why John says this here. It's the same Christ who ordained His own rejection so that the cross would happen. All of these things have to be in place so that Christ can die. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, we see uh, a picture of Christ willingly going to the cross. Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book. It is written of Me to do Your will, O God. Skipping down in verse 9, then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that it was the will of the Father from all eternity that the Son would become incarnate and that body that was prepared would be the ultimate burnt sacrifice to sanctify the people he ordained to save. And it is by that will that we are sanctified through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also why Christ can say in Luke 23, verse 34, when He's on the cross, when they crucified Him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They did not know He was the Lord of glory. They did not know He was the same glorious one that Isaiah saw. They did not know that he was the one who led them out of Egypt. They didn't know. And Christ says, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And so in John 12, we find that the glory of Christ was clearly displayed in his earthly ministry. But this glorious Christ, this Lord of glory, had to be rejected. He had to be cast off by the Jews and crucified by His own people so that in the crucifixion of Christ, God could display His eternal wisdom in saving men through the cross. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made, the fo- made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world <clears throat> through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. <clears throat> but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate cause for all things that come to pass. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in Him and trust in His blood, you are wiser than all the philosophers of Greece and Rome and Babylon. For in knowing Christ, you know the wisdom of God, which He has revealed for our glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for revealing to us that mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, You are able to save men to the uttermost. We pray, O Lord, You would help us to glory in these things and to give attention to Your Scriptures where these things were predicted and have now been fulfilled. We ask, Lord, that your glory would descend upon us as we follow him. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.